you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Dot com. Hey, we're coming here with a, another podcast, and no, I am not taking up opera. That's just the way we always enter the stupid show. Uh, but welcome. You're always welcome at the Chris Voss Show. Everyone is always welcome, as long as they're good people, though. Bad people are not welcome on the Chris Voss Show. But if you're listening in, uh, hopefully you'll learn to be a better person if you are a bad person. And if you're a good person, you'll learn how to do better. I don't know. It sounded good at the time when I improv that. Uh, so anyway, guys, we, we have a most excellent guest. We always had the best guest, Chris. That's what everyone tells me. They go, Chris, why does your podcast always have the best guests? And I go, I don't know. They just show up. It's amazing. But we booked them, and probably that's part of it, too. Um, so anyway, we've got a most interesting guest. This guy has got a journey that you're going to want to hear about, and it's quite extraordinary. It's quite unique, and I think it's going to blow your mind because I, you know, normally I'm not a, like a big poetry sort of guy. I know it's hard to imagine that, you know, heavy metal, uh, Van Halen, Metallica sort of guys into poetry, but uh, we're going to find out. So let's do that. Uh, between now and then, uh, be sure to go to our new book club that we just launched, I think, three days ago. It's called patreon.com for chess Chris Voss. It's a book club we're launching uh, to talk about all the different things that go on on our podcast, different interactions we have, the background on some of the authors. Hopefully we're going to have some different contributions, maybe some book giveaways and uh, different things that we might do with them in the future as we build it. So go to patreon.com forward slash Chris Voss, hit that uh, uh, subscribe button and subscribe to us so you can get all the wonderful uh, details of what we're doing there. YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss if you want to see the video version of this uh, wonderful gentleman we're speaking with today. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, we're going to be talking today with Brian Sonia Wallace. He is the author of the new book, The Poetry of Strangers, What I Learned Traveling America with a Typewriter. You're going to love this story. He has been described as a creative genius by LA's Department of Cultural Affairs, and a disappointingly normal by the New York Times. His debut book, The Poetry of Strangers, which came out earlier this year, tracks his journey across the country writing poems one-on-one for over 5,000 people as a poet in residence for Amtrak, Mall of America, a political campaign, and more. His company, Rent Poet, was featured on NPR and how or NPR is how I built this, and Brian's writing has appeared in The Guardian and Rolling Stone and more. Welcome to the show, Brian. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Dude, I talk to authors all day long. We talk to, you know, politics, and we talk about news, and there's a lot of people who write really brilliant novels. This is a, really a first. I don't talk to a lot of poets, number one, but you have an extraordinary, unique, and very cool sort of story. So let's get into it. Uh, what are some plugs, actually, where people can look you up on the interwebs first? Sure. So I'm in most places as Rent Poet, R-E-N-T Poet. Uh, the joke I always make is, as in, it is due. Um, and it's, uh, 
oh, people always hear rent a poet, um, and I'm like, no, 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 it's it's rent poet, and we'll get a little bit into the the origin of that story and the company name. But I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of that as rent poet, or you can look uh, me up as Brian Sonia Dash Wallace, um, also on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, and BrianSoniaWallace.com, rentpoet.com for the interwebs. There you go. There you go. So uh, give us an origin story on you and what uh, drove you to write this book. Sure. So the book came about um, really with the the Amtrak and the Mall of America residencies in 2017. And I had been doing this weird thing for, I guess, three years um, full time at that point. Uh, In 2014, I had a job and I was laid off and had spent about six months job hunting, uh, graduated, I'm a, a millennial, graduated mid-recession and sort of did that early career sputter start. Um, and after about six months of job hunting, I had heard a story on the radio about this weirdo in uh, Golden Gate Park in San Francisco who would bring a typewriter out and uh, write poems for people. And I thought, well, I can, I can do that. Um, and so I took it out at first. I was like, well, this, this is, you know, going to be a fun experiment that I do for maybe a day (laughs) and ended up just getting this incredible response from people when they had uh, the chance to share a story with someone calling themselves a poet behind a typewriter. Um, and I had written poetry and stuff before, but it wasn't, I didn't set out to be a poet. I wasn't like, yes, this is my thing. I, you know, studied sustainable development. I'd been working in nonprofits Um, and so what also ended up happening is that I realized that I was making enough tips that if I did this every day for a month, it would be about the equivalent of taking a minimum wage job, which is what I was considering doing. And so that's where the rent poet part comes from. So I set out in, in 2014 to pay my rent, um, through writing poems on the typewriter for folks. And uh, yeah, fast fast forward three years, uh, people started sort of taking notice, and I actually um, got these sort of strange corporate residencies and companies wanting me to come in and work with their clientele and, and do poems for them. And, and based on that, uh, the publisher reached out and was like, maybe there's a book in here. And I went, oh, you think so? Like, yeah, let me, let's find out. Um, and so it's been, it's been this bizarre chronicle of... Uh, <laughs> adventures and and misadventures with the typewriter uh everything from working on a political campaign to visiting a a trans witch collective in salem massachusetts um to you know posting up at the mall of america and writing poems for shoppers uh as a, a kind of roadside attraction so it's roadside attraction poetry i always talk about it as um as service poetry i'm like i'm not i'm not in the ivory tower i'm not you know managing anything i'm just sort of there like a shoe shine boy but huh. instead of shining your <clears> shoes i'm gonna you know do a little like emotional shoe shine so you 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 started now and you're you're there i guess in the park or something with your yeah i started your... out it's a, the best context that i found were always street festivals which oh. it, it's ironic in COVID times so it's like farmers markets uh i live in in los angeles so we've got a lot of of taco truck festivals where everyone's carrying cash and <laughs> drinking that's probably and... key get that cash uh, <laughs> that, that cash crowd mm-hmm. oh yeah bars bars are great i i mean where the company ended up going was a lot of corporate parties 
Wow. And it was something that was a little bit different and a little really? bit wow. interesting. That's pretty cool. Um, That's brilliant. And, and totally without advertising, totally just from like meeting folks on the street who were then like, oh, my law office is having a Christmas party. Do you want to come on Friday? Um, and at first I didn't even know to charge for it. I was like, no, I'll just take tips. And then I was like, wait a minute, people get paid wait money for this. This is yeah. insane. Yeah. I used to know this guy in Vegas who, who, uh, who looked exactly like Tom Jones. I think he had some work done, but he looked like Tom Jones, you know, pretty close <laughs> naturally before he had his work done. Uh, and he would make like just stupid money at, at corporate events to go do Tom Jones covers. Um, and do the do the act and i would just be like why don't people just pay tom jones and like he's too expensive and he doesn't have time he's doing vegas baby and uh so yeah corporate money there you go um so why a typewriter why i mean as a millennial you probably grew up on something else when did you touch your first typewriter or or come up with the concept of of a typewriter God, I think I was probably 22, 23. I definitely did not grow up with them. Um, my mom actually worked in, in IT when I was growing up, so we always had the, like, newfangled tech. We had the, you know, switched from floppies to CDs early on. Um, but the typewriter is a weird thing, and because it's because it's antiquated, because it's out of place, especially when you see someone on the street or at a party or in, in a public setting with it, I think it, it, it codes differently, right? Everything that we do, everything that we wear is is a code, is sort of eliciting a response from someone else. And if you're sitting out in public with a notebook or a computer, you're saying, stay away from me. I don't want to talk to you. But if you're in a public space with a typewriter, like you are begging people to come up and ask you what the heck you're doing. <laughs> and so for a long time, and, and I still don't have very good signage. Like my signage is really minimal because the typewriter is the sign. The typewriter yeah. is the sort of siren's call. And the great thing about it as well is it makes the noise. So yeah. not only do you ching, have a ching, visual, ching, ching. but people as they're walking past are hearing this and either having a memory jogged or, you know, for, for kids and folks who didn't grow up with typewriters, it's like something out of a movie. And they're like, yeah. oh, wait a minute, this is a scene now. We're doing yeah. a scene. Um, yeah, it has that very, very kinetic sound. Ching, 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 ching. And then when you do the, well, I think it was the, the ding of the bell and stuff. I don't know mm -hmm. if you, that is something in yours. But I imagine that one of the beauties of using a typewriter is you're writing poetry for people. So you've got to print it off and hand it to them, right? Right. You can't do that with a cell phone. Right? <laughs> well, yeah. Here, let me email that to you. Know. And there's right. no real satisfaction in email. I mean, there's something about, the tactfulness of it, I, I would, I would guess. And it's funny because I've done a couple of events now in our new, you know, post-pandemic Zoom apocalypse, uh, using the typewriter on Zoom and doing these interviews and and writing for people on Zoom. And there's something really beautiful about that. There's a, a corporate event I did at the end of June where I had people in offices in Australia and the Philippines and Amsterdam and, you know across the world all sharing this same experience but but there is something i think that you lose when you don't have that physical thing and one of the coolest things for me is that i will run into people and you know it's i say over 5000 and that's because i don't necessarily keep track but it's significantly over 5000 folks who i've written for wow um i will run into people and they'll say you wrote me a poem 4 years ago oh. and i've got it on my fridge or i've got it like on my bedstand framed or there was a um 
right after the pandemic happened, I had a corporate client just Venmo me some money. And I was like, what's that for? And she was like, oh, we were sharing our home office setups on Zoom. And someone had your poem next to their computer in their home office setup. And I thought of you. Oh, and, wow. You know, wanted to make sure you were doing okay. <laughs> and so it's it's this cool thing where it's and, – and that's, I think, also why it why it is – interesting in some way to companies because how often do you go to a party or just go out and then come back with something that you're going to keep for Mm -hmm. that amount of time um so i think of it as almost like a a a photo booth with words or it's that similar effect people are able to kind of capture that snapshot um and there's the typography of it. I mean, there's there's real tactile nature to, to typewriters, and and fortunately, I grew up with them. I, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know if it's better or worse. <laughs> but I, I do have to tell you, I've talked about this before. The the one most important thing that I learned in high school and in all of my college or all of my I didn't go to college clearly. Um, in all of my uh, twelve years of of schooling, there's one significant class that made a difference in my life learning to type and uh mostly because i went into business and so being able to you know do the qwerty uh, type or whatever it's called um was really important whenever we started our first business i would you know sit and hammer out the invoices and uh the next week my partner would have to do it and he would be sitting there spending all weekend henpecking uh the (laughs) keyboard so uh i always I, I was always glad that that was something I learned. I wasn't really that excited about it. I think I had to type, I think I had to take typing class, either a gun was to my head or mm-hmm. it was like the only class left or something. So and, this is uh, actually a, a little bit of how I started poetry. I was, I think, 10 or 11 and I was just the worst typist. I had no patience for it. I was terrible. I didn't practice. And um, my mom set a hard and fast rule that I had to type a page a day. Mm-hmm. And I realized that poetry has line breaks. And so you can type a page of poetry in about 15 minutes. Oh, wow. And so in some ways, and what I do now is really speed poetry. You know, it's, I'm talking to someone and they're not going to hang out for two hours while I compose, you know, the next like song of myself. They're mm-hmm. going to hang out for maybe five minutes. And that's about the space of time that I have to write something. But I think in, in a lot of ways that like 10-year-old... 11 year old year that I spent speed typing poetry to try to get out of typing practice um, <laughs> was really the, really the start to. of it. Uh, that's funny. So when did you write your first poem? Um, I mean, a, a, probably around that time or a little bit before I actually mm-hmm. just moved houses. And one of the things that I'm, I'm really enjoying is I have a couple of boxes of old journals and doodles and whatnot going back to when I was 10 years old. Um, and so it's it's cool to get a chance to reconnect with the past in that way and to kind of just do that spring cleaning of the self. Um, but I, I do remember, uh, I'll share this little bit with you. I wrote a poem a- around that age to my mom's spaghetti that I still remember. Um, <laughs> Ode to spaghetti. Ode to spaghetti. I love my mother's meat spaghetti with its bits of cheese confetti. You know, it's not uh, it's not Shakespeare. That's, that's up there. That's Walt Whitman-ish. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, so when people ask you uh, to write poems for them on the street and, and through your different activities, 
What do they normally ask? Is it personal? Like, do they want something for themselves to tell, something for you to be descriptive about them, or for about them to, or you for write maybe about a subject that isn't about them, mm. or what is it normally majority wise? I guess about? that's a great question. Um, people normally are pretty open, and I try to keep my question as open ended. And one of the interesting things is there are people doing this practice all over the country, right? There's probably really? not a ton, but there's probably 50 folks, and I know all of them now across the U.S. And, and more broadly who are doing this. And everyone has their own way of approaching people. And mine is, I always ask, what do you need a poem about? And there's a couple of things in there. I like the verbiage need instead of want, mm -hmm. because it's this idea that you do need a poem. You maybe don't know it yet, but like this is something that you need. This is mm -hmm. something you should, you know, you should have. Everyone needs uh, a poem. Everyone needs a poem. That's yeah, actually my... My little, it's on all my, uh, on all my business cards. It's everyone needs a poem. Everyone needs a poem. See that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so subjects, people will either get, I always ask, do you want one for yourself or for someone else? And so a lot of people will get one for a romantic partner or oh. a parent or a kid, um, or about, you know, their family. Um, when people want them for themselves, it's a whole range of things. Everything from, I've had people tell me really intimate personal stories about, um, you know, medical stuff that's going on with them or mental health stuff that's going on with them. Um, and equally often, my least favorite, but omnipresent poems, you cannot have a gig go by without getting a request for a poem about someone's dog. Really? That is that is perhaps the most universal hmm. thing across the country, whether you're in Tennessee or Massachusetts or California or Arizona. Everyone wants a poem about their dog. Which is funny. I have two dogs, but they can't read for crap, so there's that. <laughs> I always wonder, you know, like what happens to these poems? What are you going to do, go and read it, your dog? <laughs> it's actually – so I after after about a year of, of – despairing about dog poems i decided to lean into it and i went and i sure. th there's you know a few collections of everything that famous poets have written about dogs and i was like let me read what other people are writing about dogs because i'm out of material yeah when my dogs passed uh there were people that that sent me beautiful poems and they did some artwork and rainbow bridge and stuff like that and, mm -hmm. and it was really beautiful and, and thoughtful i imagine you can make a lot of money sitting outside of a rose shop at valentine's day uh, asking people <laughs> written for their... yeah absolutely I mean there's a lot of Father's Day Mother's Day Valentine's Day it's definitely there's a it's a it's a seasonal kind of seasonal kind of occupation that's awesome I think it's really cool so you wrote about your stuff now how did you get this gig with Amtrak where you're the poet in residence how did that work out you know it's all so I think I think a, a huge boon to me as an artist, as a, a sort of entrepreneur, has been a past life as a grant writer. Um, because there are all these online applications. And even the, you know, with Amtrak, I, I don't remember where I first saw it. I think it was a news blast that someone sent out. The residency with Mall of America was a Facebook post that someone shared. And so it, it, in some ways, it really is these long shot, uh, weird things. And I don't, or I didn't, at least before, you know, before now, I didn't have the literary credentials to get into sort of formal residency programs and all of these, you know, prestigious mm -hmm. writing, whatever, whatever. Um, but I always feel like I kind of came in through the side door because, you know, Amtrak 
doesn't care about that. Mall of America doesn't care. They want something that's going to be engaging for people. They want something that's going to be literary, but also really draw people in. And I, I have started talking about my stuff a little bit as like social practice poetry with the idea that it's not, it's about the lens that you look at it with, right? Like it, mm-hmm. this isn't poetry for you to go, ah, like let's look at the meter and the line breaks and think about what they mean. Like the line breaks are mostly determined by when I get to the end of the little three by five card I use on the typewriter and I go, well, that's the end of that line. Um, and there's some, you know, some intentionality to it, but, uh, really. And, and what the book is, is it's about the stories. It's about the stories <clears throat> that people share and it's about the communities that people, um, want to represent in this poetry, how people identify, how people like what you claim. I always think about that idea. Like what are the communities that you claim for yourself? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting how you found, um, and there was something in your writing uh, where you talked about uh, people were striving to be heard or or people were striving to have a voice and mm-hmm. try and find it. If you can expand on that. Yeah, I think that what surprised me and it's foundational to the whole practice, I think, is the idea that people just really want someone to listen to them. And we live, <laughs> it's sad, but it's true, right? Hey, we what? This, what? We no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we live in this age where we're like constantly putting crap out. Like we are writing on Facebook and Twitter and posting and there's just this explosion of production. I, I mean, one of my favorite facts is we're writing more than we ever have in human history. Now, are we more literate than ever in human history? <laughs> Maybe, you know, debatable. Depends on if you look on Twitter or not, I guess. <laughs> exactly. But like even sharing memes, right, is a, a form of writing, a form of curating, a form of like putting together your own personal book of your life in public for everyone to see. And there's so the thing that I think gets, gets kind of lost in that is, is that ability to just kind of sit down and, and particularly with a stranger, I think that's, that's an important factor too, to have someone who you don't know, who's able to, some people joke, they're like, this is like therapy. And I'm like, well, <laughs> like if you want to use it as that, you're welcome to, that's I cool. don't have a license. I can't prescribe you meds. <laughs> um, Look forward to the forthcoming Chris Voss book, uh, My Autobiography and Memes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure someone's done that. If they haven't, they should. You know, what you were saying leads me into the question I had set up for you was, I mean, do you feel like you're a little bit of a psychiatrist? You kind of have to do a little eyeball on people and go, hmm, what should I write about this person? Or or do you kind of... Are you kind of like a bit like a uh, psychic where you draw some information out of them first? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, Mm. some of my favorite moments are where when I'll I'll write something and like what what comes to mind is there was a poem uh, that I wrote over quarantine for a woman who had two sons. One was graduating high school. One was graduating college. Neither were getting graduations. She was like, write me a graduation poem for these boys who are not getting graduations i'm like sure that's that's an easy task let me just do let me just do that emotional labor for you real fast um emotional labor i like that (laughs) but uh and that's actually something that's i think that's a a therapy i'm gonna start using that term when people give me when people are being stupid around me i'm like are you giving me your emotional labor you idiot (laughs) oh absolutely i mean i get the the number the number of people who i'll have be like write me a poem and my response is always give me money this is my job (laughs) Um, starving artists 
But so yeah. so this woman, uh, I the poem I wrote for the the older son. I talked about the idea of kintsugi, which is the Japanese art when um, like a historical urn or vase or something breaks. When you mend it, rather than trying to make the cracks disappear, you mend it in gold. So the cracks are all filled in with gold. Mm. And this was sort of the central metaphor of this poem of like, well, the world's broken, but uh, like, let's not pretend it's not. Maybe we can put it back together in a better way. And at the end of that, all of our correspondence had been over email. And she said, oh, you have you had no way of knowing this, but I'm actually Japanese American. And that's my my ancestry. And that's oh, my family. wow. And so there's little moments like that where it's just like, oh cool there's something you know i i don't particularly uh have any superstitions about what's going on there i think it is coincidence but it's it's cool when that happens um the nice thing in what i do is i get to ask follow-up questions Mm. like i'm not trying to look at someone and say ah i've i've decided the future of your life mostly what i do is i say (laughs) you know what are you doing with your life and what would you like to be doing and what's going well uh often i'll ask for a specific memory so the poem is is kind of centered in space and time in, in their own experience. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's basically how you better connect with an audience, right? You use the, the three easy step program that you mentioned. Yeah. So I, I have these three steps that in doing this practice over and over again, I've kind of come up with um, the first one is open the floor. I think that the typewriter does that really naturally for me, but it's something that we're all doing and again, now in, in Zoomtopia uh, is a challenge. How do you start when people are logging in here and there and everyone's, you know, making sandwiches while they're on their calls? I know I am. Um, but <laughs> o- opening the floor. That's and, just in. <laughs> what Brian is doing on his Zoom calls. <laughs> creating that, uh, the number the number of calls that I will, the camera will be moving. It's like, just go into my fridge. Don't mind me. Um, as long as we don't hear a toilet flush, we're okay. That's when it gets, uh, that's when you become famous on Zoom. <laughs> just got to mute it. But yeah, it's that, <laughs> that remembering that, right? I've only had that happen once and it wasn't in a, wasn't in a hype. Yeah, it was kind of funny how those are all popping up. Oh God, right? Yeah. Um, um so, have you ever written a poem for someone and then they they got it and they went, I don't know who the hell you're talking about right here. This is me. Mm. No. <laughs> well, there you go. You must be a good judge of character. I remember one time I got a card and I was in the I was at the end of a relationship with a girlfriend who I was trying to get to move out and uh uh and and I got this card for my birthday. It's like said all this stuff that was nothing compared to anything she had been saying to me recently because we were in the throes of breaking up and uh, the throes of breaking up. Um, and uh, and I opened the card and I read it and it was such a um, well, sorry word. It was it was such a juxtaposition from where, from where we were and the things she was saying to me and mm-hmm. basically her opinion of me uh, mm-hmm. that she was verbalizing. And I was just like, did you read this damn card before you, when you bought it? Or did you just buy any? <laughs> Had she written in it or it was just like the message on the card? Yeah. Yeah. Basically you just phoned it in. You picked up any card that said happy birthday. Cause I read the inside and I was like, what the 
you know, I was, and so I always read the insides of cards because I'm like, do I love this person as much as much as this card says? I don't know. So that's very interesting. Is this Hallmark? Is this Hallmark card accurate to my feelings? Is this accurate to how much I either oh, hate or like them, or kind of I'm on the fence? Yeah. You know, I don't want to tell I them that's... I love them too much unless I do or don't. But you know, you gotta you gotta be factual. I think that's really important. Yeah. I don't want to send only, the wrong uh... signals. The only poem I ever remember refusing to write was I had a guy come up to me and he was like, can you write me a poem to get my girlfriend back together with me? Oh. She's she's inside. We just had a fight. Mm. And I was like, nope, can't, can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. So there is a, there's like, a line. I will not, I will not promise you that this poem will oh, okay. fix your relationship. Like, if so you'll, your you'll do the poem. You just, there's no guarantees on this. Baby. Yeah, you know, I, do you, you might have to have yeah, some legal disclosure on some of these, maybe. <laughs> Actually, I have a friend who made me a little sign that sits next to my typewriter that says uh, something like, no refunds. <laughs> no refunds. <laughs> you find you aren't the person that I wrote about, <laughs> or the person that you give this to does not like it. We are not to be held responsible in any way, shape, or forms. Exactly. All sales are final. Um and and so uh, companies, it, it, this is a question for you. Uh, companies are increasingly looking at employee creativity. Any creativity hacks that uh, can come from your work and your experience? Sure. I think that the, the big takeaway for me is that we have this weird idea of creativity as something that, like, exists in a vacuum or something that, you know, create, people are creative. People are, are, like, these magical beings and that's what creativity is rather than the idea that creativity is just like what happens when two unlike things meet each other and have a dialogue like I, I always use the metaphor of a metaphor which is comparing two unlike things and finding they're the same like sure your love is your love is a mountaintop why not how how are those things related and I think that's where creativity is 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 looking at two things and and finding that sort of middle ground but i always think about that as as being in conversation mm -hmm. and everything that i'm doing if i was just coming up with stuff off the top of my head and giving it to people they wouldn't care so to get them to care to make that creativity useful it's about talking and listening to what another person is saying and kind of applying your different mind to that situation to that person and i think that that does translate to to all sorts of situations and i think that really if you want creativity i i do some uh, creative writing teaching as well one of my favorite tricks is i'll just give people arbitrary things that have to appear in their writing i'll ask for five random words and uh i'll just say great now you're going to write a poem and these five words have to appear in this poem in this order that's it hmm. And just that task of trying to work your way between unconnected concepts, I think that's where, where creativity happens. I think that's where it lives. Maybe you've opened up a new avenue of psychology, you know, um, that or it's a metaphor for life that the real poetry of life, the real beauty of it is that we should actually listen to each other and get to know what the hell we're saying, which is Look at you. You, you started this saying, I'm a, I'm a metalhead. I don't know about poetry. And now you're waxing about the real poetry of life. Yeah. I'll do Shakespeare next uh, in a bit here. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, Horatio. I don't know. Um, the, um, 
so this is really interesting to me. I mean, this is really cool. You, you, you put a lot of thought and process into this, and you discovered some interesting things about the internalization of stuff. Um, one thing I saw I talked about here is uh, a lot of people seem to ask about stuff that they love, whether it's the dogs or, or other people or maybe it's themselves. <laughs> I know a guy you can write a lot of self-love poetry about in the White House. Um, the... Uh, uh, that's, and he's got the money for it. You might want to consider that. Um, but, uh, uh, you could just write poetry. I love me. I love me. And I love more of me. Uh, see, look, I'm a poet right there. That's it. There's, there's actually a book. This is, this is a, a, an odd plug, but, um, there's a book of Trump quotes that have been given line breaks and turned into poetry that was put out a couple years ago. Um, that, that exists. You know, I use that every any time I have food poisoning. I need to extricate stuff from the body. Read a little <laughs> bit of that. Actually, I think I've seen enough of that poetry on Twitter, so there's that. I think it's really cool. I watched a Zoom call that you did with a whole mess of people. Uh, you did like a two-hour Zoom call that was interesting, um, and you guys were interacting and, and uh, the artistry. You know, would you say that, one of the things that's lost in our world where, you know, we're always looking at phones and consuming. And like you say, we're, we're the society that, you know, we've probably been given too much democratization of voice because people want to spew every BS thing that they have coming through their mind. I mean, 90% of my stuff is that, um, the, uh, but a lot of it's garbly gook that no one really wants to hear. Or no one cares. What was that a line from fight club? Uh, we buy things to impress people who don't give a shit. Um, maybe the same can be said about our blogging and stuff. And so I think it's interesting you you found this depth where where people want to be heard and they're so desperate for it. Like one thing I, I always like now is is I, I kind of enjoy calling people. And I come from the age of where I used to call people. But I actually kind of like it now because people, people are kind of like, hey, you're a human being? Oh, hey, we're going to talk? Oh, Cool. This is like really novel, you know, and back in the old days when I used to sell stuff, uh, you know, 5,000 people were calling a day and, you know, the, the guy had his thing up. So right. uh, it's easier to close deals using if you call people. But I think it's interesting um, what you found and what you wrote about in your book where um, all this stuff. So so did you spend so Amtrak had you did you do most of your traveling around America with the Amtrak thing and then eventually you got to the Mall of America or or how did that uh how did that sort of evolve? Yeah, it's, it was a, a mix of different travels that I talk about here. So Amtrak was a, a significant chunk of them, and I tried to link together a lot of different places on the Amtrak. Um, and then there's other ones where I you know, drove out or flow out, flew out or I flowed, flowed out. Flew out. I flowed. Um, one of the – thinking about what you just said, one of the, the – people who made a big impact on me was when I was on the Amtrak opposite me uh, in the little roomette, which on the website, they're like, it's like a hotel room. It's more like a closet. Um, was this 95-year-old guy named Oren, and he was really smug because he was going solo on the train to visit his brother, who was 96, and he was like, my brother has a caregiver. Um... And, oh, was that was that a one up on his brother? Then he was thinking. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He was like, <laughs> wow. I'm independent. I'm solo traveling on the train, but you know, just this this guy who, you know, talked about serving like around World War II, 
and getting to sit with him and talk with him um, for three days on a train. Um, one of the things that, that really came out from that was the idea that you don't have to leave a mark on the world to have a good life. And I think we're all so obsessed. I'm like, I, I'm one to talk, right? Like writers are the most obsessed with this. It's like, my legacy, this book will be an imprint and it will stand the test of time and never burn. But like, no, of course, you know, there's how many thousands of books published every year. There's so many people speaking um, that I, I think there's something very comforting in this idea that like, hey, like not not everybody has to hear you. Not everybody has to, uh, you know, you don't have to be... Mark Zuckerberg, you don't have to be the Bill Gates of whatever it is you're doing. You can just sort of, you know, make a make a positive impact on ten to twenty people, and that's kind of that's kind of okay. Um, Love that idea. That's a beautiful idea. Um, you know, I, I I had one of the Russian authors about Putin on, and you know, we we talked about how much money they were they were amassing privately the the leadership of the Russia. And I was like, you know, honestly, if I was like a despot sort of leader, like I'd be like, I don't know, get a billion or two. And then it'd be like, Hey, you know what? You guys go have fun with this country stuff. I'm going to another country. So you can't prosecute me for all the shit I did. And then uh, I'm going to go hang out in the Bahamas and chase chicks around the pool or something, you know, but uh uh, and, you know, we talked about how there's just this consumption, like, I got to be the number one richest guy in the world. I got to be up in the Forbes list. And it's interesting what you just said where, you know, sometimes we have to make that difference. Have you ever, have you ever made, have you ever touched someone like maybe you wrote something and made them cry on the spot? Oh, man, all the time. <laughs> one of my favorite things at when I was at the Mall of America, I kept a, a tally um, because I was trying to have data for them. Were you trying to make people cry? I wasn't trying, but one out of every five did. 20% of people who I talked to, I talked to a a little over 100 people, and 20% of the people that I talked to cried at some point in the interaction. And this is how I know that it's not my skill as a poet, is that sometimes they'll cry just telling me the story. Like, they don't even need the poem written yet. It's just being able to talk about that and being able to convey whatever it is they're experiencing to someone who is not in a hurry and is not trying to get anything out of it and is like not trying to be their friend you know like i i'm not collecting phone numbers and emails and following up i'm just like oh i'm here here in this moment to do that Mm. um and i (laughs) i do appreciate what you say i i think that there is like a this like national and probably global obsession with being number one with with you know being the best and I, I like the idea of sort of, you know, whatever whatever you're doing, it's kind of good enough, right? Like, it's good enough yeah. for now for you at this time. And partly, I think people just need someone to tell them that. And I feel yeah. like so many of my poems, especially the ones where often it's young people who come up and they're trying to figure life out and they want a sense of direction or they're, you know, older and they're in the middle of a career change. They're getting a divorce, whatever's happening. And they kind of just need someone to be like, oh, yeah. That's a thing that humans do. That's probably okay that you're doing that. Like, you don't need to be killing the game 24-7. And do you think it's because we're, we don't take that time out to be present? And what you, what you kind of facilitate is a moment of, of being present, kind of like Eckhart Tolle will talk about the power of now, where you mm. give people a moment, you, you take them kind of out of their space, you know, they're running around 100 miles an hour doing their stupid stuff, looking at their phone, and all of a sudden there's a guy with a typewriter. This is pretty unique and extraordinary, and 
he's writing poetry. Like this isn't something you see at every mall or every place in the corner. You kind of take them out of that, that uh, routine that they're doing and you kind of give them an extraordinary moment of presence. Maybe. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I'll say also from like a personal, like, I don't know, slightly like snide side of me. It's so great to be able to make people wait Hmm. because we have the conversation and then I have to write the poem. And like, I always tell them if they want to, you know, go off and get a drink or chat with their friends or whatever, they can do that. Um, but yeah, I just remember like writing a poem for a, a you know, C-level executive at Facebook. It's like, okay, wait for five minutes and then I'll be, I'll be right with you. I'll be right with you. Just you wait. know? Well, you have to wait because like, you know, even with like the portrait guys that you see at public places sometimes where they, they, they draw your portrait, you, there's part of you has to sit there and, you know, be subjected to waiting and you probably have to, thoughts for a while it's probably have to, you have to think about your thoughts oh my god <laughs> don't I mean, make me do it that's what i do that's why i'm on amazon buying everything i possibly can i don't want to be left alone with my thoughts left alone uh, with myself uh that's interesting when you do your poems do you put your name at the bottom of everyone oh yeah i mm-hmm. uh yeah i put my name i put the date um i sign them so you have an extraordinary amount of work that's just running around where where uh where you know one day there's going to be you know I have this this poem in my attic with this painting of of uh you know whatever and then there's a poem and uh you know there might be these extraordinary works of art that will make it into uh the Smithsonian or you know someplace in France or crap like that I mean, this is this is my long game, right? I feel like books live on shelves, and you read mm-hmm. it once, and then you close it, and then you put it on the shelf. And maybe if it really impacted you, you'll take it out and you'll read it again. And the nice thing about having poems on scraps of paper is that people have to figure out where to put them. Like that's that's brilliant. Put I didn't think fridge, about that. That is brilliant, wall, Brian. And then other people are seeing it as well, and you're you're reading it every day rather than a mm-hmm. book that you read once and put away. You're you're interacting with this piece of literature, and you're using it as a metric for you know, maybe the poem was written five years ago and it doesn't really apply to you anymore, but it, it reminds you of where you've come from. And hmm. I think that's equally valuable. It's a mark in time. That's really interesting. I do that with fortune cookies. Uh, things. Really? When I was younger, I did. I don't do it anymore. There's nothing attached to the screen now. But when I was younger and I was, you know, searching and trying to figure out who I was and what my job was in life, I would, the fortune cookies, of course, uh, you know, those little strips that I like, they easily tape to the monitor of your screen, you know, because they're just those little thin slits. And uh, so, you know, if I found one that, you know, you're good with money, um, uh, you know, you're better looking than Brad Pitt. I'd be like, ah, clearly. <laughs> so we should put that up on the uh, Let me thing. remind myself of this. <laughs> remind yeah. myself. But uh, no, I love the beauty of this. The just, it, it's multifaceted and in, in it's, uh, I don't know, it, how would I describe it? You would probably describe it better, but it, it's, it's so interesting to me. And and I grew up in an age where uh, you were bored because you didn't have phones and all this kind of crap. And so you would look at the you would look at the uh, the typing that goes in the imprint that goes into the paper and, and whether it's the topography of the typing or it's the nature of it. Like I've been helping my mom uh, during the covid crisis. Uh, with a lot of her historical stuff because we've been trying to – she's got all these photos that we've got to get digitalized uh, and a lot of this material that we've got to get digitalized because, um, you know, 
thank God she's never had her home burned down, knock on wood. Um, right. But she has like all this old stuff. And so she literally has like all these old like letters that were typed and everything. I think she has a typewriter somewhere around here. Um, and <clears throat> I, I took in, uh, and, and, but, but I remember, you know, I used to look at it and you, you'd feel it and there, there just really is a tactile nature to it. You'd sometimes you just look really closely at the ink imprint and, and the mark it made and, and how the ink worked and stuff. And, uh, I think, you know, Bill Gates or not Bill Gates, but Steve Jobs brought topography. I think it was to, that's right to, yeah. uh, the thing, but there's still, there's still something about, there's still something I think romantic about the typewriter. And that's probably people probably drawn to you is that the romanticism of it, you know, I mean, uh, I know a lot of my, uh, author friends, they like to get a picture of them next to us, like some old 18 year, 1800s typewriter sort of thing. Right. And, oh, uh, but yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's really cool. I mean, just the whole brilliance of it. You can, pull it out, hand it to people. You don't have to email it to them. There's an instant gratification of, of, Hey, I've got a poem and, um, you should sell frames on the side. That's what you should do. You should be like, Hey, you want to buy a frame for that? Because my biggest thing was I fear is I'd get it crumpled on the way home. Right. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally have a, a box of frames. That, oh dear. You know, okay, co- cool. In COVID era, there's not much I can do with them, but depending uh-huh. on the, you know, depending on the context, I'll bring that and, and have that as an option or envelopes that people can put them in. Um, oh, that's good. That's good. Is, Cause that's the know. big thing I'd be worried about. I'd be worried to get a, so what, what is the average cost? If you don't mind me asking, of like, if you're working on the street, I, I'm sure with corporate and stuff, you you do something different. But if you're working on the street, what what were the average prices you used to charge me when you started out, and then when you got going? Because I'm thinking of a second career. So there you go. Consider consider street poetry. That's uh, that's where the where the how much money is in here, Brian? That's really what I'm trying to find out. Is there there's no money to know about? No, it's a billion uh, dollar industry. Venture capitalists come. But when you when you do stuff on the street, would you mind telling me what you charge for a poem for somebody? Yeah, for sure. So uh, when I first started out, my sign said, uh, give me a topic, I'll write you a poem, pay me what you think it's worth. Oh, wow. And I would not let people pay me beforehand. I would mm-hmm. read them the poem. And then mm-hmm. there was a, like a very beautiful and awkward moment where we had like a small discussion about the value of art. And that was <laughs> like, I loved that, you know, but also I... I... Was this a bit of a guilt trip or was it a, like a, the value oh, of art? I mean, probably. Probably. Let's be real. It probably was. <laughs> um, and then I had a conversation with a friend who's uh, like a tax accountant. And he was like, you should really put an average amount because people just need to know what the, you know, what, what the range average is. is. Maybe. So then I put, you know, your topic, your poem, your price, average 10 to 20 bucks. Um, and so on, on the street, you know, if I'm in a context where people aren't expecting to run into me, I think that what you're prepared to pay for a surprise is like the cost of a sandwich, right? Like that's yeah. about, that's about the value of a surprise. Yeah. Um, now if people are reaching out to me to have them, you know, to write anniversary poems or wedding vows or whatever. Oh yeah. Wedding vows. That could be, that could be a good business. huh? There's some, there's, I've gotten to know more about the wedding industry than I ever wanted to know. <laughs> I do a lot of weddings. I mean, you know, not at the I moment. I, but. I, I have some friends that might want some divorce poetry. <laughs> They're done divorce poetry. Oh man, I'm sure I have. Have I? God, I'll have to. I'll have to look through my. Uh, I do take pictures of all the poems. I'll have to look through and see if I have a good divorce poem I can send you. 
That that would be funny, it's extraordinary. But no, it's it's interesting to what people would pay for that and and the meaning of it because you know honestly you know if I buy a five to ten dollar like I bought a seven dollar burger yesterday at at uh, Five Guys Burgers uh, plug, um, I expect hey. some cash for that Five Guys, <laughs> um, and uh, it was a very good burger I must say. Um, but, uh, I paid seven bucks for that, but that baby's gone like mm-hmm. seven bucks woo-hoo, and really the value of like a poem. Like I just keep seeing him sitting in a, in a frame on the, on the, on the thing. Um, you know, I, I think there's a picture here of some Chinese symbols I have kicking around the office. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have no clue what they mean, but it, there's something <laughs> cool about it, but mm-hmm. a poem and especially where it's written from somebody like this isn't personalized. I don't know who the hell like I probably bought this from like the dollar store someplace and sure. I was like, Yeah, that was uh, cool, you can put that on the wall somewhere. But that's not personal. What you're writing for people is very personal. It's like if I got David Frost to write for me and you know, I get to you know, that's a conversation piece where I get to constantly go, Hey, you know, David Frost wrote that for me. There you go. Um and I think for, it's cool uh, for titles for the poems. I always I don't usually give them their own titles, but I always write for the person's name at the top. Oh, okay. So they so don't get like that level from from square one. You're not like, oh, he's talking about, you know, mountains and stars. Is this about me? It's like, no, no, no. It's about you. You're the mountains <laughs> and the stars. Just connect these dots. If you're not super familiar with metaphor and poetry, that's what's going on here. It, it's about you, and if you don't think it is, you might just want to go home and contemplate it. No, I love this. Uh, what's interesting, somewhere in in the research that I did on you, you talked about how you'd gone you'd gone all over this nation in, in the stories here in the book, which make it quite extraordinary. Uh, check it out, guys. The poetry of strangers on Amazon. We'll have a link on the website. And, but uh, uh, you talked about going to some ta- some of the towns that were kind of the Rust Belt or or uh, towns that were kind of uh, almost ghost towns now, and you had some interesting experiences there. Yeah, it's been a lot of, like, small small cities, um, and really interesting to see how across the country there is this kind of model that everyone's trying to get a piece of the action in. And it's funny, because I, I started my career doing uh, a lot of community development, anti-gentrification work, and going to all of these small towns and seeing them desperately try to attract tech companies, desperately try to attract artists, try to make their town the kind of place where, you know, a startup would relocate to. Um, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee has some of the fastest Wi-Fi in the nation um, and, and is a tech hub in the South because they've really deliberately invested in public, uh, in like a public utility as a strategy. And it's fascinating to see, I mean, especially in the in the national climate right now where it's like, nope, like we're not going to do anything, uh, anything publicly. Just everything's going to be private and we're going to, you know, the market's just going to decide it all to see all of these small places really working actively to attract that kind of investment, to attract, um, to, to kind of make their physical space reflect uh, that broader national trend of, of kind of what, what does a space need to be able to bring people in? What does a space need to be able to be exciting? Um, and that was something that was mirrored across, I think, most of the communities that I I went to. Um, so there the, was a, do you, you felt there was a need for more sort of, uh, uh, you know, this, this artistry, art, art and stuff like that? 
I mean, I'll be I'll be honest with you. I have I have mixed feelings about it because I'm like, oh, am I, you know, am I coming in as a tool of developers to try to up property values and potentially price people out? Um, you know, did did I single handedly succeed in doing that? Probably not. Like, I'm not I'm not going to take credit for that. Um, but it, it is it is something that. Uh, at least was was aspirational in a lot mm-hmm. of these places. Every, you know, everyone wants to have high property values and tax revenue and all of that yeah. stuff. Did you find that uh, people in big cities uh, were more receptive to you, or people in like smaller towns are more receptive to you and stuff? Mm. To be honest, it's about the same. Hmm. Um, so it's more it about the people then. It depends a little bit on the context of where you're setting up. Like, definitely Mm -hmm. small towns are more likely to have, like, a central square. Like, ah, everyone comes here to do their shopping. And so if you set up there, you can exist there. Um, Big cities, you have to do a little bit more sleuthing to find Mm -hmm. where those central arteries are. And if there are central arteries that aren't tapped, like, I've gone out a couple of times in, in Los Angeles to, like, Hollywood Boulevard or Venice Beach where there's yeah. lots of buskers and there's lots of street performers and that kind of stuff. Those areas are not successful for me. Oh, wow. Um, because it's not surprising. People see it and they're like, oh, another weirdo doing this <laughs> weird thing, trying to, you know, <sighs> trying to make some art, whatever. Um, it that's is really, interesting. That's, that's really yeah. interesting. Because one of my like fa- food food festivals are are successful because really? you know who's making art at the food festival. That's true. So you got to go someplace where the thing that that's interesting to me about Venice Beach. One of my favorite places to go in the world to shoot photography, not to mm. shoot people, but to shoot photography <laughs> is uh, is Venice Beach, and I love to go with a long lens, like a, a, a ten to two hundred, and uh, I think it's ten twenty to two hundred. Um, I like to take a long lens and I like to sit, I usually try and get a restaurant. There's a restaurant that's there. Um, and I try and get an an angle where I can sit right by the, the walk, but I can shoot down long ways. Cause I like to get, I like to shoot people when they aren't paying attention. They're just being themselves. Cause if they see you shooting them, then they start going, they either are fronted or, or they're just kind of like, um, they start thinking about what they're doing, but it, Venice Beach is such a beautiful art, artistic sort of thing. But it's interesting that that it wouldn't work as good there because there's so much art, and to me, it's fun. Like I remember one time I went there, and and uh, I have video of this somewhere. I had so many photos, um, and I have video of some guy who had a, a big giant carpet sign where you could kick him in the nuts for like five bucks or 10 bucks. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. him. And so I paid, I paid some chick, some hot chick to kick him in the nuts for the photo or the video. Um, he was like, you, you, but you need to do it. I'm like, no, dude, I really don't want to interact with you in that way. <laughs> it's not, it's not my thing. Wait, was this, but, was this woman someone who you knew or did you like, no, she was, I just, I'm, you know, I'm pretty good that way. I can improv That's on the great. street when I'm photography, doing photography. Like, and I'll hey, I want to kick this guy in the nuts. I'll be like, I'll look, I'm going to pay you to pay. And I've already paid him and I'll pay you some money to kick this guy in the nuts. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. So, but yeah, it's interesting to me, but God, you, you really have a whole psychology behind this. Uh, any other standout stories you want to talk about in the book that maybe uh, you want to share with us? Mm. The one that I, the one that I love telling the most maybe is uh, there was this woman who came up to my little 
desk um, at Mall of America outside of, you know, Wetzel's Pretzels or whatever, and um, waited for a while before approaching and then comes up and says, I, I haven't really spoken to anyone in a week. I'm just coming from this Tibetan meditation retreat uh, that where I was in silence for a full week and tells me a little bit about that. I'm like, wow, that's, you know, that's really hardcore. What are you doing at the mall? And she says, oh, I came to get Dippin' Dots as a reward for myself. <laughs> for, having, for having done this big spiritual journey, I'm going to get ice cream. That's why I'm at the mall. And I was like, yeah, that's, that seems like a pretty accurate reflection of who we are as a people. Journey. Like, right. We're going to go on this like big hero's journey. We're going to do all this introspection. We're going to have it be really deep and really spiritual. And then we're going to like drive to the mall and get some ice cream. <laughs> because treat yourself, right? <laughs> um, it's Dippin' Dots, damn it. Right. But there is something beautiful about that. I think like, I love the yeah. idea. I think it's so easy to moan about everything that's lost in mm. cultural shifts in cultural, you know, cultural change. And I think one of my goals as as a poet and as a writer is to, to also find the things to, to celebrate, to say, you know what, these two things are not mutually exclusive. Like there's an irony there, but it doesn't make either one less sincere or less genuine. And people are living really full and rich emotional lives and the most important place in the world for them is Disney World and that's okay. Sure, yeah. If that's their spiritual pilgrimage that they go on every year, <laughs> like you gotta have some sort of pilgrimage so might as well do that. You know, you, you, you said some really beautiful things right there. Uh, I'll have to go find this piece and cut it out for the uh, trailer. Um, but you said some really beautiful things about how you know uh, how you know we do we do so much crap like all day long we we don't see crap uh and and uh our uh, yesterday i was going through some different uh things and um uh, i was being told some things that i you know i wasn't excited to hear um uh, and and they were about what someone else is going through um and and i realized that i didn't want to hear it but uh, and I, I started to walk away and pull away. And then I realized that it wasn't about me. It was about what they wanted to tell me and that they needed to talk to me about this. And uh, it didn't really have anything to do with me, which probably was the reason I was disinterested, which is kind of a shame that we look at the world through that lens. Um, and I just had this aha moment where light went on and gone. And, you, you know, this information is uncomfortable, but this this person wants to share this with you and it's not important to the, probably them much other than they well it probably is important to them because they need to share it but the uh a lot of times we look at what people share with us is like okay well, so what's the value to this and what's the value to me you're kind of caught in the crossfire they're yeah. doing they're doing their emotional work and you, you're just there yeah and so i said hey hey stupid you need to listen you need to give some feedback to this person and take 10 minutes out of your day and just listen, man. And so, uh, I kind of learned something yesterday. Hopefully I'll remember that lesson. Um, but you know, there, there's sometimes where people just need to be listened to. And, and so, you know, sometimes we just need to, we need to value different things. I think, I think that's what's really wrong with our society and some different things We're we're, we're so busy talking that we don't listen and, and, and we don't have a value to listening, I suppose. I think it's how, I mean, everyone's trying to make meaning in some way. Like, I thought it was really interesting earlier you talked about, you're like, when I was young and trying to figure out my life and what I, you know, what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, you figured it out? Like, what? 
No. What is, <laughs> what is, what, what is it? <laughs> that's the never-ending journey. You're so right. That is but, the uh, never-ending journey. I'm, I'm still reinvent. I mean, when I hit 50 or 52, somewhere in there, uh, I learned so much about life. And part of it was because I had this, uh, I had this uh, strewn carnage behind me of 50 years of sure. of destruction and creation. And and but but at this point, you can look back and see the patterns and go. Yeah, there really is a pad in there. Yeah, I might want to seek some help. Uh, yep. <laughs> and and I found out more about me. I mean, um, you know, I may have found out more about me through this extraordinary podcast I've been doing with you that have just been really enlightening. Um, so um, anything more you want to plug about the book? We could probably sit here and talk for hours because I've really enjoyed this. But uh, um, uh, anything more you want to uh, plug about the book and everything? Sure. I think that... Um... I think that the the big thing is that idea of showing up for each other, kind of what you talked about. And one of the things that was interesting in, in writing the book is, especially kind of the later chapters, start to zoom out from my personal interactions with people. And I start to talk about, um, for instance, there's a, a woman who visits folks in immigration detention and there was someone uh, at a detention center who was writing poems. And so part of what she did as part of their correspondence was put those poems together into a book and wow. kind of surprise him with them. Um, mm. There's, you know, folks who uh, are just trying to, to be artists in small towns and to figure out how to talk to a community and particularly, you know, small, small town red state uh, the arts are seen as something that kind of kids do, right? Like you do this up until you're 18 and it's very important and we'll, you know, put you in the after school club and then you should have figured yourself out by the time you're 18 and then you get married and you settle down and you, you know, do, do the rest of your life that happens starting then. And then you get the divorce, um, uh, then you get divorce poems. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you reinvent everything at age 50. But, uh, I think there is something to this idea of, of, of how we're present for each other. And especially now in, in, let's see, I had zoom apocalypse. I had zoom topia. What's, what's the next zoom zoom place, zoom Mageddon. Um, the, the way that we're able to show up for each other is different. And I don't have a clear, you know, one, two, three step, uh, solution for that. But I think that it's something that we're all thinking about now. And I think that it's something that we're all having to really uh, get into. Like you said, like all of a sudden I'm talking with all of my friends on the phone. And I would, you know, I had gotten out of that habit because you kind of see each other on social media. You see each other at events and like a phone call to catch up is is weird. Why would you call someone and just be like, hey, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you know? And you have to have your clothes on when you do it. You know, you can't just be walking around your house in your pajamas when you show up on the Zoom call. So uh, I like what you said there. We have to start showing up. We need to, you said it earlier, we need to start showing up for each other. I really like that. And I think like people are, you know, like people, people are doing it in, in lots of different ways. And I think that's, that's part of the beauty of, of what I found in the book was the extraordinary diversity of ways that people are doing that, that people are building community, that people are, are showing up for each other. Um, and and the silly and stupid context that it happens in, like it it doesn't have to be. I I think that 
we're in we're in a moment right now where we're talking about mental health a lot. I'm a big advocate for artists in particular as we look to the next, uh, you know, gigantic recession and cuts to arts across the board, which is going to happen. Um, artists advocating for and, and making the case for the arts as part of mental health. But I think that we we get in this cycle of saying, well, mental health is therapy and medication, but like it's also gardening. And it's also going for a walk, and it's also reading a book, and so finding the ways that, uh, and, and it's also you know going to Disney World if that's your thing. It's it's making those pilgrimages that are important. For me, for a lot of years, it was vodka. So I do have one <laughs> other question for you. Uh, do you do you think uh, do you think your experience and what you what you do and just interacting with so many people, do you think that's really taught you more about yourself than maybe what you've taught other people? I mean, shit, I hope so. Um, (laughs) Sitting with other people for five minutes, I'm sitting with myself the entire time. Um, I learn more from about myself from other people. Uh, Like that's one of the reasons I like doing these interviews is because I, I like learning about other people. I'm innately curious in them. Trying to describe this book because it's, it's gotten lumped into, into memoir, which I think is interesting Mm. because I always thought of it as essays when I was writing it. So I've kind of come to the, the conclusion I'm like this is a memoir in other people's stories because mm-hmm. of course everyone who I'm talking to is helping to kind of sketch the limits of who I am and what I'm doing and what I think um, because we we exist in those conversations so when I'm telling you about the person I'm having a conversation with what I'm telling you is about myself and what I'm interested in them um, and and where I see myself in their story one of my favorite uh, favorite things about the the whole old typewriter custom poetry practice um, was actually said by uh, I'm going to be pretentious and call them a protege of mine Um, and I asked her I said how do you know when you're done talking to someone and ready to start writing and she told me oh it's easy I just talk to them until I find myself and then I write that and I said that's in my book and you are getting credit for it, but I am going to tell everyone that you said that because it is genius. So that is Natalie. Natalie Nicole Dressel is the person who said that. But um, I just think it's it's the best summation of of this whole I don't know thing that I've been doing for eight years, and someone else said it. So, goddamn them. Why did you choose the typewriter that you the model make a model of the typewriter that you used, and why did you stick with it? So here's the thing about. Uh, being someone who is known for doing stuff on typewriters is I have probably 30, maybe Holy more. crap. You might want to see about, somebody about that. About half of them work. Half of them work, I swear, Chris. Um, it's really hard, actually. So everyone's like, can you find the ribbon? Yeah, you can get the ribbon on Amazon for seven bucks. But Holy crap. If you want to get it repaired, if anything goes wrong with the mechanics of it, um, you have to go see you know, Schultz, who's like a 70-year-old man, German man in Westwood. Um, mm. And he's he's the guy who can repair... There's like four or five typewriter repair people in LA who are still wow. left, but they're all, you know, they're all older at this point, and it's very expensive because their time has a premium, and there's seven. I'll bet. Yeah. Um, so I, I... It's extraordinary there's enough business going around, so that's awesome. And they're that's mostly, awesome. you know, it's it's like electronic stores that will have, like, the old employee who still knows how to do this. So the uh, one you traveled with mostly... Shops. Sorry. Yeah, the, one you, the one you travel with was... Do, do, like, I used to own a lot of guitars, and I used to... But there was one I, I would always write with. 
Like I would always somehow there was there was one to two guitars that were always the inspiration. One was an acoustic, one was an electric. And for some reason, just the juices or creative or the the whatever spherical sort of uh, inspiration would flow through those instruments and and like the other guitars were just like i don't know screw around guitars or make noise with or you know look mm-hmm. for a certain a certain fuzz or something out of it but uh and and sometimes you'd you'd write with the one guitar and then you'd go to the other guitars and see how it would sound over there uh, do you find that with a certain typewriter that you like that that that's your inspirational uh muse Totally. So the the typewriter that I took around the country, which is actually on the on the cover of the book, was an Olvetti Laterra 32, um, Italian model 1960s, 70s, um, and it's just super compact, super light, fits in a backpack. Um, I would, you know, travel all over with it. My favorite thing is is uh, going through TSA with a typewriter. They're always very confused. <laughs> Um, like, They're like, what the hell's this. going on? Uh huh. I'm like, do you want me to? And I always tell them, I'm like, I have you want a typewriter in my backpack. <laughs> Would you like me to take it out? Um, but that one actually, at the end of those travels, I was literally getting back from a road trip, and the case was slightly open. And as I was taking it out, the typewriter fell and oh, smashed no. against the concrete <gasps> and broke. So that typewriter that you know was sort of the typewriter that all the poems and the books happened on. The little bookend um, is actually no no more. Um, oh. So I have a. I Every have time a I see a typewriter from here on out, I'm going to think of you. Whenever I pass a typewriter, I'm going to think of you. Um, I leave it's you with a curse. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's a great curse. Uh, you know, I, I've had friends that they tour around and they do photography, and I've been worried in some of the places I've been in with photography. Sometimes I've had to do a little trespassing on government property, not personal property, but government property, As to get do. some great photography. Usually it's at the top of, like, radio tower mountains, mm-hmm. you know, and they've got it fenced off, but you, you want this beautiful shot. Or sometimes you find these old buildings that, that have these graffiti on them that are really cool and you've got to hop some fences to do it and you're just like i don't know if they're going to confiscate my camera you can arrest me but i want my camera back because it's got film in it um and uh so the beautiful part about your typewriter is no one's going to steal it from you when you're on the road i've had friends had their cameras stolen from them uh, on on like train cars in in germany um but no one's going to steal from you and then if you need like a weapon you know they're you can heavy. kill somebody with a typewriter. <laughs> Swing that baby and hit him. Well, I really love this conversation, Brian. This is up there in one of my top conversations. I, I, I think this is so extraordinary. And the insight that you have in into what you're doing is quite extraordinary, too. And I'm sure the book is as well. Um, give us uh, the plugs on where people can buy the book and order that up and get to know you better on the interwebs. Great. The book is on uh, Amazon.com, where everything is, uh, or you can also go to uh, bit.ly slash the poetry of strangers, and that's a whole mess of links to find it. Uh, you can also find it on my website, briansonyawallace.com, um, for all business things, rentpoet.com, rentpoet on any uh, of the social medias, you'll find me there. R-E-N-T poet, not rent a poet, just rent poet. Rent poet. Dot com. Do you think that by the time you're done, you'll have more with your life, you'll have more, more poetry out there than, say, Robert Frost or someone? And, and like, after you pass, I mean, God forbid, 
you know, you pass 100 years from now or whatever, uh, like we're all going to be sitting around going, hey, man, we all got to get the poetry together, Brian, so we can <laughs> we can compile this stuff in a book. There's like, you know, you it, like I said, it's like, you know, you find a Rembrandt in your attic that was under a right. tarp and you're just like, it's like, yeah, it's a Rembrandt, you know, that, that could possibly happen. So you never know. So there you it'll go. Be, it'll be interesting to see like the after the afterlife of everything. Because if I if I ever got a poem from you and paid you for a poem, I would be keeping it, and I'd just be like, someday this is going to be worth like double what I paid for it. <laughs> so <laughs> At you least go. double. Well, but from an emotional value, it would be worth it. If it's worth... for you, does anyone else, you know, does anyone else care if it's all about your huskies? Biggest problem is, is if it's not for me, like I don't care about anybody else. So there you go. Uh... <laughs> the catch-22 of all art. Catch-22 of all art. But it has an intrinsic value, so that's what makes it important. Uh, so thanks for being on the show, Brian. I'd love to have you back anytime if you want to if you want to talk about this, that, or the other. But uh, I think it's an extraordinary journey that you did, and and, and it's it's wild. You got to tour the nation doing poetry. Like if someone had asked me, like, "Hey, man, you want to hitchhike across the nation and pay your way through poetry?" and I'd be like, "I don't know about that, man." That's not um, but work. you know. I'm not a poet, so there's that. And I remember uh, I the uh, I took a picture the first the first hotel room that I was in that I was ever like someone got me this hotel room to write poems. It's like document, document, document. So excited. I feel like a band, you know. <laughs> there you go. Uh, do you get any groupies from the from the poetry? I have a couple. Actually, it's on my website. There's the the live stream of the book launch because all events now are recorded in perpetuity. Um, and the, the folks who I had uh, interview me or do the Q&A at the book launch are actually two people who I met on the street um, five, six years ago who have since become close friends mm-hmm. and collaborators. And um, th- there is something really cool about, you know, certainly not everyone. I'm sure there's about half the people I write poems for probably are like, oh, that's cute and put them in their wallet and throw them away later. <laughs> But you know that's that's a reality I'm I'm you prepared paid. for and realistic about. Uh, but you do get these people um, who are are close friends now, and it's like, <laughs> oh, how did we meet? Oh yeah, you know, it was in this parking lot where I was writing poems. See, if I ever did this. poems, I'd do it just to pick up chicks and stuff. But I don't think my poems would ever inspire any chicks. They'd be like, that's really cute, boy. Uh, but no. <laughs> oh, there you go. anyway guys be sure to check out brian sonia wallace's amazing book here the poetry of strangers what i learned traveling america with a typewriter i think what's interesting about this is what you find in your travels and the experience and what you discover about people or 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 you expand about on your experience with people and what there really is about um you know, it's it, we're in such a political time right now. We're in such a diverse time where no one's talking to each other, and and maybe this is more of what we need to do is show up for each other and uh, listen more and and be part of uh, a conversation with each other as opposed to just yelling stuff at each other or we're just <laughs> tweeting. I tweeted this. <laughs> I'm not going to stick around long enough for you. I'm working on what I'm going to say next. So there's that. Anyways, be sure to check it out. Be sure to check out Brian online. Uh, if you're interested, we're going to be having the uh, patreon.com fortress Chris Voss. It's a book club we're trying to build where we can have more conversations. I talk about my experiences with the uh, different authors, the books that I read, uh, how we got them on the show, maybe some of the different cool stories about that. We're going to be giving away books and different things and promotions and things. Uh, so a whole back 
into the back end of the podcast that you'll be able to experience. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chris Voss. Uh, also go to the cbpn.com or for all your friends, neighbors, relatives, dog, cats, mistresses, ponies. Uh, you know, let them all uh, listen to the show. Just play it for the cockroaches when you leave for work every day. Give them something to entertain themselves with. Um, also, uh, you can go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss to see the live version of this. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Be safe, and we'll see you next time.